0: So, Tim, there's one thing, there's one elephant in the room that we just have to get
1: out of the way before we begin. Is that OK? One elephant? All right. OK. Assuming that there's one elephant in the room, what is it? Let's address this term,
0: manifesto straight on. And the idea that manifesto
1: is not, it's not a bad word. It sounds like you're trying to convince me, because it kind of sounds, you know, it still has kind of a negative ring to me. Okay, well, I I had the same gut response as well. Okay, but you're bringing this up because that's what we're going to talk about today with 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 our guest, right?
0: Yeah, yes, it is, and I want to let just let listeners know, actually, most of the listeners in the U.S. who have the same bias that you and I do, that this word manifesto uh something bad that really manifesto is very simply and just this a public declaration of policy and
1: aims and it's not this
0: crazy political communist
1: rant okay <laughs> okay uh, actually i'm i'm glad that you mentioned that because i had that same peculiar thought when i read michael's title this idea of the manifesto to me as an american Was that like this paper would be some sort of communist rant? Okay, but it's not. (laughs) It's just not because that's not what a manifesto is. So fortunately, only about 50% of our listeners are in the US and the rest are probably, they probably have a great grounding in what a manifesto really is. So it probably doesn't even affect them.
0: Yeah, they're probably going, "Why are you guys even yeah, talking about this? Exactly. What the why why are you bringing this up?" Well, it's because we're American and and our stupid Americans, you know, kind of do that. <laughs> yeah. Um so but let's let's uh let's get going and let's let me say that our guest today is Michael Hallsworth. He is the managing director of the Behavioral Insights team for the Americas. We've been chatting with Michael since 2018, when we first asked him about his role in the development of such great models as Mindscape and East. Ooh, East. I'm so glad you mentioned that. One of my favorite models.
1: Absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah.
0: And by the way, East and Mindscape are not manifestos.
1: <laughs> okay. They're models.
0: They, 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 and we use them as practitioners Right. And speaking of putting into practice, Michael co-authored one of our favorite books on the application of behavioral science with Elspeth Kirkman, a book called Behavioral Insights. And we strongly, strongly recommend uh, this book to listeners who are trying to build a behavioral science practice. Anyway, Michael's always had great thoughts to share with us and with the world, and we appreciate
1: that significantly. Oh, God, isn't that the truth? Um, Michael was one of our three special guests that we had at the 100th episode celebration in Philadelphia back in December 2019. God, Can you imagine? Like just a few months before the world shut down with the pandemic, we were in Philadelphia celebrating our 100th episode. It's kind of amazing. Oh, my
0: gosh. Getting to 100
1: episodes seems like
0: such ancient history now. What are we at? 300 plus? We're closing How in come on... we didn't celebrate 200 and 300 <sighs> that same way that we celebrated 100? Can you say pandemic?
1: Oh, <laughs> pandemic. There you go. I forgot. Okay. But more than just celebrating with behavioral grooves, uh, Michael has been on the forefront of thought leadership and scholarship in behavioral science for many years. He earned his Ph.D. from Imperial College in London in behavioral economics and has spent most of his career either working in public policy or on corporate applications with governments and organizations around the world.
0: And back to this manifesto, Michael has recently published this paper called A Manifesto for Applying Behavioral Science, and it's about the future of the still emerging but now kind of established field that we call behavioral science. And in it, he outlines 10 proposals to get researchers and practitioners talking about how we can keep the fantastic new field on the right path. And welcome to Behavioral Grooves. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan.
1: And we hope that right now you sit back with a full glass of manifesto and enjoy (laughs) our conversation with Michael Halsworth. Michael Hallsworth, welcome to Behavioral Grooves again.
2: It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thanks.
1: It's great. We are here with Michael Hallsworth, a, a, a friend and compatriot in and troubadour in the world of behavioral science, um, leading BIT. And we're here to discuss a paper that he's going to publish shortly, and it's called The Manifesto for Applying Behavioral Science. So how about if we just start with, Michael, why do we need a manifesto? Why, why is there a need for a manifesto at this point?
2: Yeah sure and I realized that actually quite far down the road that the word manifesto in the US has slightly different connotations like in the UK it's just a standard thing that sets out what you're what you're going to do and what you kind of believe in and your principles and, and so on and i think in the US it has more connotations around like the communist manifesto yeah. for example which yes. um which does that stuff but it's not it's more of a past kind of associated with a particular perspective. So to clear that up, this is meant to be a, the the idea is a set of principles and it's a statement about what should be important uh, for the future of uh, applied behavioral science. That's what we're getting at with that term manifesto. And I think where we're coming from, where I'm coming from, is that applied behavioral science has been really successful over the last 15 years. There's been a massive growth in Uh, the number of teams that apply it, the range of approaches, uh, and and so on. And it's demonstrated to have results. But I think with anything that you do in practice, you have to reflect and say that, well, we've done hundreds of these projects now. What what are the themes that are coming out? What are we seeing here? And do we need to push ourselves um, to go further? Because it may be that there is greater opportunity and that we are not that we're not actually fulfilling in the way that things have turned out. So it's it's trying to be both kind of recognising of success but also say you know there are some challenges that have come up. People have made criticisms of the applied behavioural science approach and rather than ignoring them I think we need to look at those and say they may be fair and respond positively. And that's why we have 10 proposals in this manifesto about how we could respond positively, and take those opportunities for the future. Yeah. And
0: those 10 kind of principles that you talk about, I thought were really interesting, as you said, that reflection component that, you know, prior to getting on and recording, we were talking about this and we go, we we get so caught up in doing the work that sometimes we don't take time to step back and take that kind of reflective look and kind of see where we want to go and where we have been. So what did you find with those 10 different pieces? What are some of the major themes that are coming out from from what you're looking at from that reflection?
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, first of all, that this, is, this isn't another framework, right? In terms of yeah. how to apply it. There have been several of those over, over the years. I think, in a way, it's interesting that it isn't a framework because it tries to say, how do we step back and say run another framework of here's how to apply it? It tries to be a bit more reflective rather than saying we don't have all the answers, but here are some proposals that we can work on as a field. And that's really important because the overall theme is not here are the technical fixes. It's not like, oh, machine learning is the future of um, behavioral data science. That's the future. Just go and do it. Or <laughs> it's not like oh, we need to fix RCTs so they can deal better with changing verbs. Let's go and fix it. Instead, the proposals kind of fall into three buckets. One is around like scope. So what, are, yep. what have been the ambitions uh, for the field? Um, what have we been applying behavioral science to? And um, are those the right things? The second bucket is around... Methods. So, you know, the stuff I just said to you there, there are some things about how we apply behavioral science that we could improve. Some of those require us to think more about, say, the importance of adaptation to new contexts. Rather than saying that something works, uh, you know, I, I maybe have been guilty of this myself. We have at the behavioral insights team some frameworks that say, you know, people are influenced by what others do. And you put that statement out there. And that is maybe broadly true. And I think, you know, eight years ago when we published, say, the EAST framework, that was the main message we wanted to focus on. But we're not eight years ago. We are in a in a place where we know there's a lot more going on in terms of the importance of context, the importance of adaptation. So really then, let's get serious about that. What is the What is the methodological <laughs> improvement that we need to take that seriously? And so in that methods bucket, there are things like, you know, How we talk about replication, same results in different contexts. How we talk about, say, is just having lists of biases enough? Probably not. So what do you do then? And then finally, um, third bucket is around values. What are the kind of principles we bring to behavioral science? And that talks about trying to challenge overconfidence, trying to be humble, trying to really explore in depth where people are coming from, trying not to use irrationality as a concept so much, or indeed, I would say at all, because I think the, the downsides of it in a practical context outweigh the upsides. And then how do we move away from this idea that, you know, behavioral scientists are just kind of observing behavior from some set apart nowhere land, <laughs> some view from nowhere. Right. We're not. What are the preconceptions we are bringing to this way of seeing? And how can we understand those and account for them and reconcile what we're doing with, with that reality. So scope, methods, values, it's not just a technical fix. If we want to have a bigger impact to address the big issues in society, we need to grapple with those things as well. One of the things that I've found really fascinating, especially given my
1: role now at uh, in a bank as a practitioner overseeing behavioral science within, within an organization of 55,000 employees, I think about scalability. You know, we've Kurt and I have had the chance to talk to John List about scalability from an economic perspective. But scaling interventions is, a, is, is kind of a, a big deal in the manifesto. And you, you noted, and I just want to quote you here, you said, the overriding message here is for greater focus on the organizational changes that indirectly apply or support behavioral science principles. Rather than starting with a behavioral science project and then trying to scale it, we could start by looking at operations at scale and understand how they can be influenced, and and I I really really love that to to flip the you know basically flip the narrative on this. Um, can you tell us more about this idea of starting by looking at operations at scale and then understanding how they can be influenced?
2: Yeah, sure. So nothing nothing I'm saying here is easy, but I think
1: um, <laughs> well we were hoping yeah. for easy. <laughs> oh, <man.
2: laughs> Actually, uh, you know, so, some some are easier than others. Like I think some recommendations around building in prediction to as a standard thing. Like before you run an experiment, predict what's going to happen, record it and feedback. That's a fairly self-contained one, which I, I think could be integrated into to standard practice. To return to your question, yeah, so I, I find the scaling arguments and, and debates a little bit I know what the right word is. Frustrating in some ways, but they're they're a bit limited. So they all assume we have done a discrete project. It has in some sense worked, however you evaluate that, and now it needs to go to other places. And I think that is that is important. And there's no getting away from that. We we run projects all the time. Let's think about how they could be used more widely. There are various incentives that act against that from funders, for example, and, you know, just also what gains attention. What gains attention is generally, here's a new result, here's something we want to contribute to our understanding of human behavior. When you get into the realms of, and we did it in in 50 cities over five years and it was really hard, people respect it, but I would say it doesn't excite them in the same way. If they're, if they're practitioners who know how hard it is, it can excite them. But the incentives are not as strong. So the way I was thinking about this is, yeah, as you say, flip it on the head, it's head. We spend a lot of time talking about how do you set up a nut unit? How do you set up a behavioral insights team? And that makes sense because we do know things about that process that could be better. But really, I think the Bigger question is not how do you set up a, a dedicated team, but how do you look at an organization and say, here are the behaviors, the processes that are constituting the organization? It, I, let me put that differently. How do you look at an organization and say, it has certain processes that affect everyone and they create certain behaviors? Let's look at those processes and say that they are the target of behavioral science knowledge. They are implicit rather I- explicit uses of behavioral science. They are how we, we set budgets, for example. Do we always think about the default? We don't. How do we set up uh, human resources, for example? Do we always do the best we could there? Do, do we think about what is going on? We don't there are interesting developments particularly in public administration around like behavioral hr they call it that try to look at this seriously but the reason i think it's so important is well two reasons one it gets at the scale issue so if you have an organization and you look at the wiring of it that wiring goes into every room it it constitutes the the like the building right it flows through it's not like you start with one room and say, everyone look at this room and it sh- you should decorate it like like this, it, it kind of is integral to, to the organization. And the other reason is because the truth is people may not always ask for behavioral science. Organizational leaders may think, you know, we we tried that or I just don't buy it. Or yeah, like it's something that was interesting four years ago. But those issues don't go away. And the power of behavioral science in the application doesn't go away just because you don't call it explicitly behavioral science. And so if you can build it into the wiring, then it will endure, even if, to use my very tortured metaphor, you redecorate the room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It'll still be there. But,
1: Yeah, go go ahead, Kurt.
0: So with that, Michael, I think the really interesting piece is Uh, Underneath the scope part of this paper, you talk about using behavioral science as a lens, which I think you know marries with exactly what you're just saying, that it's not this set of tools. It's not a room. It's a lens to look at the organization. And the more that we can change that metaphor, that it's not a series of biases that we need to understand. It's not a series of nudges that we need to instill, but it is a lens of how to look at organizational behavior. As you said, I hadn't heard of uh, behavioral HR. That to me sounds really fascinating because now I'm looking, I'm thinking about this as a lens to look at how everybody within the organization is working together. And again, to your scale point that you just were talking about from Tim's question it seems to lend itself into that as well. Would you agree? Is that am I am I way off base on my kind of interpretation here?
2: no you're not off base i think what is interesting about behavioral science as a lens now this is an idea that i and others have said for some time it's not is of the whole manifesto the least new part in some ways Yeah, because we have we've recognized this as as an issue and the reason it's being it's emerged as an issue is actually it's it's almost like come out of the things that made behavioral science strong. And I think this is a really interesting thing where the approaches that, that, that came about and which you see in various frameworks by us, by other organizations, generally involve looking, identifying a behavior, quite specific, you know, exploring the context, developing some kind of solution, drawing on behavioral science, testing it, and then scaling it. And there were very good reasons why that came about, because at the start of this current phase of applied behavioral science, I know I I was there, there was a lot of skepticism about, will any of this stuff work in practice? Right. Right, And it was like, well, we're going to give you some organizational resources, we'll give you a bit of time, but we want to see... The results. Yeah. And,
1: and oftentimes that involved like a pilot or a small, a small program, right? Not, not again, it's, it's redecorating the room, right? To some degree, it was how it kind of got started, right?
2: Yeah. And so if you, if you go in and say, well, there are two ways of thinking about this. You could go in and say, okay, here's a really big policy issue. And here's how you need to completely rethink that. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened. That happens more than people think partly because it's harder to talk about those examples. And I have a um, paper which came out recently, which people can read if they're interested, which is a response to this um, this argument about the I-frame and S-frame, which uh, George Lowenstein and Nick Chater have written. I respect them enormously. I don't at all buy their argument about it, but I kind of said that behavioral science has done more to look at structural issues than people think. I gave some examples. But regardless, they have a point in one sense, which is that the standard approaches I just mentioned tend to focus on specific elements of a policy and environment in order to say, we changed that element. The trade off is we didn't change everything, but we changed that one thing and we can be sure we did it. Because when you're in a room of really skeptical policymakers, economists, the first thing they'll say is, how do you know that this made a difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you say we ran a randomized control trial where we changed this element, that gives you some credibility. What it also does is, over time, people see those presentations; they see the benefits in terms of, you know, that strength, and they say, "Okay, that's what behavioral scientists do." Yeah, they change one part of one thing when other things have been decided generally downstream generally keeping it nice and neat and okay well you know if we need that we'll call on you or here's <laughs> here's some things we're going to bring to you yeah. and so the other side of it the broader potential tends to be less prominent and demand is shaped around that very kind of narrow precise controlled approach but that's not everything and has got us to this point, but I think there's a danger of diminishing returns in that space. So, can
0: I tap into that? Because you talked about RCTs and using those and how they've been used effectively to demonstrate that. But you also talk in your methods um, section, and uh, you know, as you're starting to go, you know, we talked about scope. Now getting into methods, and you say put RCTs in their place. So, what do we need to do? I mean, because we still need to show there is a the impact at some level. So, how do we do that? And, and what are you talking about when you say put RCTs in their in their place? Yes,
2: yeah, so I'm trying to be a bit provocative in that phrasing, and that's maybe <laughs> I, some of I the. I
0: love that myself, but I have my own biases on this, so I'm I'm gonna I'll hold those on yeah. for our grooving session. So.
2: <laughs> so it's um, yeah, that's where the the manifesto element's coming through a bit in the, in the phrasing. Uh, <laughs> so look randomized control trials we have have many many advantages and we have done a lot of them at bit as you know it's been a core part of our approach with all the advantages i just said but we haven't really spoken about this yet but one obvious aspect of the world is that um we're dealing with complex environments i won't go into it now but there's a whole proposal around understanding how we're dealing with Complex adaptive systems. That sounds like I'm just saying things are complicated, but it's not. It's a way of understanding the world that points you towards certain approaches, practical approaches, building in adaptation. And RCTs are part of that. Complex systems are a bit of a challenge to randomized control trials. They're not a fatal challenge, but you know, if, if in very basic terms, randomized control trials involve some form of group, a control group that is treated differently from other groups. But what if you're in a system where people are interacting all the time, like in a city or a, you know, in a market? What if those interactions have unexpected effects and can change the nature of the system itself? Well, then it can be harder to keep a control group separate, and it can mean that rather than going from like stable point A to stable point B, that your interact sorry, your intervention can change the nature of the whole system. And so, you know, pre-registration uh, is like good practice for uh, randomized control trials. We say, here's what we're going to do. But what if everything changes when you intervene in that system? These are some of the challenges I'm talking about. So I think firstly, what you can do is try to strengthen RCTs to deal better with that complexity, anticipating potential harms. There's this idea of dark logic exercises that try to really force you to look at what could be the harms of your approach, or what could go wrong, rather than a theory of change that's just like, "Here's what we expect," you know. And, and that involves you know, engaging people who implement and and participate in, in in an intervention. You know, there are options where you can build in feedback and adaptation to the design of randomized trials. So when things change they can adjust to changing conditions. I won't go into these options here right now, but they're things like evolutionary RCTs, um, smart trials. You can use machine learning to look at how people are responding and reallocate people to different arms. And also I think really interesting thing is you can look at alternatives as well. So I think it's really interesting to show uh, and apply behavioral science to agent-based modeling, which is about... How you try and simulate the way different actors in the system will interact, um, which is really important for a complex system, but a lot of those models that exist tend to insu- uh, tend to assume that the actors are operating on rational choice principles. We know that's probably not the case, so behavioral science can add something there so you get a kind of behaviorally informed agent based modeling, lots of technical terms here, but that then is a real fusion between thinking about complex systems, thinking about evidence about behavior, and evaluating what is likely to happen in the real world rather than a kind of static world of a, a randomized trial protocol. Yeah.
1: One of the things that you you talk about, and by the way, I love this idea of, I'm going back to like getting into the wiring, you know, the building itself, not just the the room. And I guess that's because kind of where I'm at work-wise and career-wise, I, I, I just really resonate with that idea. You talk about choice infrastructure. We're all pretty familiar with the idea of choice architecture. Uh, but you talk about choice infrastructure. And I was wondering if you could, uh, in the manifesto, I was wondering if you could spend just a minute sort of explaining that because I think that that's a really, it's a cool concept uh, to to start to get out there.
2: Absolutely. So the first thing is, it's not my concept. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's not it's not my it's not my terminology it was created um well the the framing of it is from Ruth, Ruth Schmidt and Kathleen Stenger who have i'm a big fan of their work and they have some really great papers um which i encourage people to look at i think they're very thoughtful in terms of thinking about ideas like choice infrastructure behavioral brittleness they they have these really kind of interesting ideas but basically, what they say with choice infrastructure is kind of what we were talking about. So there has been a lot of focus on choice architecture, um, but I think choice architecture points you towards, if you like, discrete, like in this metaphor, buildings or you know things that are almost standalone. But obviously, there are connections between those buildings. There's the the plumbing, the the, uh, the sewers that go between buildings, and so those connections and that infrastructure really affects the discrete units in ways that maybe choice architecture doesn't think enough about. If you just take a like a, a, a set of choices, you're cutting a lot out. So when when they talk about choice infrastructure, they mean, like the wiring, the conditions in an organization that or or a, a wider system that that allow that, that shape what kind of architecture you can even have, for example. Whereas if you just walk up to the building, you may think, well, it had to be this way in some ways. You don't think about that stuff. But then you have, if you're an engineer, you're thinking about, here are the possibilities. This constrains what we can build here. And so it's just that broadening out, really, what, which is kind of, you know, to us architecture, it's true. The metaphor em- encourages you to think about a discrete set of things. Now, I think the the challenge is, where do you stop, Right? what are the ways of thinking that make this kind of tractable and it's not just like, oh, everything is connected to everything else. And there are ways of doing that. So I'm not saying just go completely and say, well, everything's connected to everything else and it's all very hard to work it out. But I think it's a metaphor as well. When you're looking at that saying, yeah, we talk about choice architecture, but let's also think about the infrastructure here that shaped that architecture.
1: Very cool.
0: Yeah, I, I love all of these, how they're tying in together it goes back to what we started at the beginning of saying we put our heads down we start doing the work we we have successes within those pieces that we're working on but it's taking that larger perspective that larger view and trying to elevate everybody up to say where can we go from this and i think going back to the this aspect of being a manifesto the last section that you talk about in values I think is one that as a practicing behavioral scientist in the work that I do, Tim, I'm believing the same thing for you, is that these values is part of what we talk about all the time, the ethics of this. But I think it goes beyond that and kind of thinking even bigger than just the ethical implications of this intervention or that intervention is like thinking about how do we have to approach the the discipline and and the work that we're doing from a large scale, and what are those values we have? So, would love for you to talk a little bit about when you think of values, and kind of as that manifesto of saying, "Look, we're doing some good things, but we need to do better." And I think that's what I'm I'm that's what I read into a lot of what you you wrote here.
2: Yeah, I can give you some some uh, examples of what I mean here. So, I think the first one. Uh, which we talk about under this label of be humble, explore, and enable. I do think there is a tendency towards overconfidence, or there has been. (laughs) And that is, you know, overconfidence happens in many different areas, but I think there are a couple of things that can make behavioral science um, vulnerable to this in particular. And I think one can be to rely on these kind of you know, often phrased as biases or heuristics, but rely on these kind of decontextualized principles and then apply them to a real world setting without thinking enough about what is actually going on here. I'm not saying everyone does does this, but I think it is a real potential issue. So if you have these ideas around, say, I don't know, like optimism bias or, you know, the fundamental attribution error, you'll be familiar with many of them over the course of you know, your episodes. Well, if you have those to hand, unless you spend enough time thinking about and looking at what's going on in, in the context, there's a danger to kind of pattern recognition and saying, oh, well, look, that's, um, that's present bias or, you know, I, we spotted it and that's the, uh, that's the cause of this behavior. And, that, and, and here are harms that are arising from that, that bias. Now, I'm not saying everyone does this at all, and I think it's true that um, a lot of the the better practice in behavioral science doesn't do this. But I can, in the manifesto, I point out some instances where, in our own work, as 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 the behavioral insights team, we went a bit deeper, and we thought initially we understood what was going on, and then later we found out that actually there are really good there there are good reasons why people are behaving in a particular way. It's not a bias. There's an aspect of the wider context that is explaining what's going on here. And I think this is a critique that's come around, that's been around for a while of behavioral science. So it's not new, but I think it's worth you know taking it seriously. So, and looking at that, yeah, worth taking it seriously and, and worth thinking, what do we do? So I think this is where, I think the word irrationality is is actually not helping us. And you'll see big variation between how much, People use this word. Some people, you know, name their whole approach or organization after after that word, or their book, and some people don't really use it in the way they're thinking because they think about, you know, at the other extreme is someone like Gerd Gigerenza, for example, who's saying this is all evolutionary, adaptive, and sometimes maladaptive, but really think about how it matches context. And so I think that is a fair point. We look to be clear: applied behavioral science is a broad Range of things. It's never been the case that it's just like nudges, and we we focus on biases alone. Over the years, people have been thinking about, okay, well, you know, this the the good approach, boosting, and so on. That's been part of it. But I think there's this underlying issue that you can get with overconfidence that's kind of sometimes baked into the the method. So I think we need to you know limit the use of irrationality. Really understand that if we're making a kind of conclusion about behavior has to be provisional and incomplete, and something that, you know, this is where the idea of testing helps, but um, it really is a hypothesis. And I think, you know, going into more detail about people's goals and strategies, their own interpretations of their beliefs, feelings, and behaviors. I think, if I'm honest with you, certainly in the earlier days, there was a bit of a reaction to research that, was like let's do a focus group and see what people say about the behavior and then say that's what the that's the um the truth and the real understanding sorry uh, look at a focus group and say what people say is the cause of their behavior is actually the cause now i'm not saying that th- that you then have to go back the other way but i think there has not been enough uh, attention to people's goals and strategies and their interpretations of their beliefs feelings and behaviors and that can matter because otherwise you you don't fully understand the context. Again, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but I think it's part of. It's like saying that aspect of our practice. When we get it right, we should build on that. When we just when we are at our worst, maybe and say, "Oh, well, this is um present bias, and here's here's the solution. Let's do less of that." When when you talk
1: about irrationality, and you've been on you've been campaigning sort of against emphasizing the word irrationality for for some time and what what would be a better way to frame it because i think that it probably comes from the roots of behavioral sciences sort of going back to behavioral economics and the economic model of being rational versus not rational you know so so there's sort of a, a roots problem there but what would you replace it with or how how might we change our framing or thinking about that that model michael
2: Yes, so I want to be clear that I'm not saying that there is no such thing as rationality that you couldn't you couldn't define it. Um, And I think you're right; it's partly because of the the roots in in behavioral in in economics, right? I think it's more like a practical thing that the the use of it in practice is often unhelpful. I think because it encourages that kind of overconfident approach that that I just um, that I just mentioned. And I think it almost stops you thinking about a broader future where the use of behavioral science is decentered. uh, People are using it to achieve their own goals. And I don't mean in just in, like, I, I'm aware of the boosts and the approach around boosting, self-nudging, and so on. I say elsewhere in the manifesto that actually we're thinking about all these things in the wrong way, and we should be thinking about how much people are involved in shaping their intervention, even if it doesn't boost their capability. So it's like, there is a very simplistic argument that is put out there that nudges are disempowering and paternalistic and uh, boosts and um, the various things like nudge plus are empowering and they're, they're much, much better. And actually you can be, I think you'd be paternalistic if you go and say, what you really need to do is uh, improve your um your capabilities and learn this new approach. I think that can be paternalistic. And okay. And and,
1: and, and okay, right?
2: It's a good thing. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is more complicated than just saying, oh, we should move away from this. Like the the nudges are bad and boosts Hmm. are good. Like what do people want here? How much have they been involved in making that choice whether they want a nudge or a boost? There are learning costs involved for like a boost, right? Like people have to say that, they may not have those capabilities right now, they may not want to learn right now. All I'm saying is more complicated, but I think there is a broader future for behavioral science which is more decentered, away from a model of there is a choice architect who identifies, you know, biases or whatever, and changes things that leads to a certain outcome. And I think there are many different ways that can go. They link back to the idea of complex systems as well, and the way change can emerge. They go beyond the idea of boosts, which are kind of very individually focused, and so on. There's a future there, but I think rationality can be can bake in an, a more disempowering idea of behavioral science. I think I agree with that critique, critique over time. People have made it before. I think it's got it's got legs. So, uh, the, but the response is not like, oh, let's let's not do any behavioral science, which, is like, is <laughs> like sometimes the idea of it, like you were too quick to say someone's being irrational, therefore you should just walk away and do nothing. No, there's a positive thing here as well about understanding behavior and context, thinking about the way people use information. And there are many ways you can think about this in terms of like, I I, I won't go into too much detail, but there are approaches like resource rationality, which is like people are making the best use of their available resources in making decisions. So if people are coming up with an answer that is wrong in some ways. Maybe they decided it's not worth getting that answer right. And they've had a broader look at at how they want to do things in their life. So it's not just like an unstructured way of saying, oh, just walk away. You you, You can take a new approach as well. There's a positive agenda here.
0: Yeah, I think there's an interesting aspect of, as you talked about this, this is a complex component and there's a variety of different pieces, but it's not a throw everything out because this isn't the, you know, there have these negative elements to it. It's like, no, we have to look at this from a different perspective and try to understand where can we and how can we best apply some of these things so that it improves everybody's performance life elements as opposed to being that top-down this is the way that we're going to do it uh, element as we're, we're thinking about this. The, the, this values section was the part for me that I thought was really interesting. And I, and I don't think we have enough time to really get into it, but I, um, you know, there's this element about data and, and equity that I think given the power of machine learning and AI as it's coming on and all of the factors of the technology that is coming into play What is our role as behavioral scientists to make sure that when we are applying this? And I loved you talked about personalization of services and how there's an element of people that, you know, that's very scary. And I can tell you that is one of the things that's been, Tim and I have talked about this. That scares me. Uh, But I think you laid out some nice pieces of that. And I know we have just a couple minutes left, but could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Because I think that that was something that struck home with me.
2: Yeah, sure. So, where I was coming from here is, you see a lot of um, discussion around the power of machine learning and personalization, uh, you know, data science more generally. Uh, and unfortunately, it's it's presented almost like, well, of course we can just do this, and yeah, yeah this is the obvious future. So it's like technically um, one criticism of um, Behavioral science has been—it's like imprecise. Um, if you take the nudge paradigm, and I should say that nudges can do so much stuff. And sometimes, when you're dealing with policy at, at a high level with, pat- when, with not very good data, then shifting the whole a whole population's behavior—maybe that's the wrong term—enabling a change in in behavior at, at scale at margins is the best thing you can do. But one of the criticisms has been this very broad brush, it's it's quite crude, you know, you, you're not really being very precise, you could do more. I think that is right. But again, we, we tend to have these discussions in quite technical way, without thinking about these really big, looming, ethical debates. And so I just wanted to say that, you know, let's think about this. So will people know what data has been used to target them and how? If you have very specific data about people, could that be used to exploit, you know, vulnerabilities? Do people, particularly in the public sector, expect some form of universality, some form of non-discrimination, if you like? What kind of characteristics is it okay to target on? You know, I think this is very difficult territory. I think you know there is the danger as well of uh, algorithmic bias people have talked yeah. about, that you you could use some of these approaches, which I think could be really powerful to exploit rather than help people, particularly vulnerable people. And it may be that disadvantaged groups are more likely to be subject to the decisions of algorithms, and therefore inequality is being perpetuated. And then also finally, you look at some of the data, what do people want? Like if you ask them sometimes, they say um, they want some personalized services, um, they don't like customized advertising, particularly based on sensitive information. And they don't like that information being collected. I know there's something of a paradox here. Sometimes people want the, some of the outcomes, but not some of the collection of the data. But we're really in the foothills of, of asking people what they want. Like there, I was looking, there really isn't that much data. Yet on the other side of it, there's lots and lots of attention on how would you do it?
0: yeah technically right, right.
2: like yeah. yeah so in very brief uh, we don't have the complete answer here but i think you if we know that um there's a lot of variance in in um behavior and algorithms and machine learning can be used to identify those differences in situations and responses then the fundamental principle is those techniques should be used to support and m- Ideally, r- reduce the kind of inequities that exist that you've identified, rather than exploiting them and making them worse. Because you could use it to say, "Well, here are here are people we can make a you know I don't know like a quick buck on." Mm-hmm. That is the nightmare, right. I think, or, yeah. or that that's the ethically very challenging route right. that I I would say we shouldn't go down. We shouldn't go down as a field, right? But unless you recognize that danger, then you won't know. Uh, the warning signs until you zoom past them.
1: Yeah, this yeah. is always the case, right? We're always stuck with this idea that these these the lens, the behavioral science lens, and the and the resulting interventions can be very powerful, and it, they can they can be used for evil just as much as they can be used for good. So, uh, that, I mean, that's that's an ongoing problem. Yeah, Michael. As always,
0: this has been fantastic conversation. We could go on and on and talk about We could go on, uh, all, on of uh, these, uh,
2: yeah. all of We've these pieces,
0: started. right? But I, mean, I would, but yeah. but we will encourage our listeners, go out, read, read this article and um, we'll have links to it uh in, in obviously the show notes and various different pieces of it. But as always, thank you. So appreciative of not just the the conversation here, but just your thinking in this field. I mean the the way that that pushes the envelope, I think, is really positive. It is that we need to stay, take a step back. We, we, keep, we just can't put our heads down and just keep moving forward. We need to stop, pause, and reflect. And now from that reflection, we can make a better decision on how we need to move forward as a field, as a discipline, and as, as just practitioners ourselves. So thank you for that.
2: Well, thanks so much. I mean, the article should be out in Nature Human Behavior when people are listening to this. Um, There is a longer version, which will be available from bi.team, the behavioral insights website, encourage people to dive in. You know, I could have written 50 blogs, but instead we put it all together (laughs) to try and make one cohesive uh, thing. So I I really would urge people to get into some depth here because we tried to make some practical recommendations as well. We've barely scratched the surface today, but it's been as always, fantastic talking to you both.
0: Well, I, to, to that point, I, I would encourage people that this is a discussion that we all need to have. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, as, as much as we can in the, the different avenues that we have here, these are discussions that we should all be having with each other to to figure out the the impact. The uh, what is that? What does this imply for how I show up every single day? Those are going to be important conversations to have. So, um, yeah, we need to go out, read this, let's start conversations, and let's make let's make our, our world a better place um, using behavioral science in a right ethical, you know, manifesto way. There you go.
1: So before we get deep into grooving, I just want to say that we've been at this for more than 300 episodes for listeners in more than 170 countries, and by the way, that's including the bots in Russia and China. Just <laughs> yep, uh, and we do it for the love of the discipline.
0: That's yeah, so that means we're going for fame and not fortune, right,
1: Tim? <laughs> Well, basically, yes. We really appreciate you sharing this episode with a friend. Uh, leave us a rating on your podcast listening app, or if you're super adventurous, a quick review that shares a couple of your thoughts that you have about behavioral grooves. And just sharing that with the world would be so appreciated. We would yeah, be we, we would, And again, we
0: would be very appreciative of your support as we close in on 350 episodes, Mr. Hulhan, 350
1: episodes. Do you believe that? That is crazy. It it kind of blows my mind. And um, it's really, it's really an amazing number to come up on to to think that we've been doing this, you know, for almost six years. And um, we just want to thank you Uh, And we want to thank we
0: want to thank everybody. And yes, we are in it for the fame and not the fortune. But if you want to help with the. Just supporting <laughs> this so that it doesn't make us poorer. You can go out to our Patreon site and help us there. Yeah. Um, or uh, you know, you can you can uh, hire Tim and myself to come and bring some behavioral science insights into your world, your organization. Um,
1: we are cheap. Uh, you know, we, we'll do it. We'll do it cheap. We're, we're we're cheap dates. We're not inexpensive, but we're we're but we can be cheap. <laughs> Oh no no it's the, I think it's supposed to be the other way around we're not I cheap I think it's the other way yeah, around yeah, I think yeah, we're shoot. in ex, we, we, we can right. be
0: inexpensive but we're not cheap yeah, there yeah, you go shoot. so yeah. that
1: one up yeah yeah okay but but whatever <laughs> we are we are grateful and anything that you would like to do to to uh, contribute emotionally morally uh financially whatever it is uh, we would appreciate it so back back to you Kurt all right so Welcome to our Grooving Session, where Tim and I share ideas
0: on what we learned from our discussion with Michael, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our future changing brains. You thought I was going to say manifesto.
1: No. I did. I did. I, <laughs> I would have bet money on manifesto brains. I it's... knew that. I should have bet, because I could have yes. won some money. You there t- you go. Well, but no,
0: I was just thinking, I mean, really, the manifesto that that Michael's talking about is really just a it's kind of a proposal for moving into the future so our brains are thinking about what the future entails and holds for this field that we so
1: love and hold dear to us and I, i don't know that's that's where i was going with it so and i think that that's a great thing to be focused on and i'm really grateful that michael as kind of a big thinker guy is thinking about the future of behavioral science, right? Uh, Yeah. We we need that, right? We need someone to... uh, uh, So I'm just grateful for his role in doing this and saying, I'm holding up the the stop card and saying, let's just take a pause and make sure that the future of behavioral science is on track.
0: I, I love that you bring up this idea about Michael being a deep thinker because... The, his thought processes around this and other things that we've had conversations with him with, or things that he's written—I mean, the whole response to the nudge kind of detail that he oh, wrote yeah. out—it's just that he he thinks about things from a different perspective, and I think it's really beneficial for everybody who is interested in this field because it just drives our thinking in new ways down new paths it takes us down rabbit holes that we might not be even seeing and so by doing that i think it just adds to the the power that we bring the the likelihood that this uh you know field is going to be elevated and not sink so
1: yeah and when you say a uh, different thinking you're talking about different thinking than the rest of us mere mortals in, in the world because because <laughs> he really does have uh, a very elevated thought process um, but let, let's talk about I, what f- the first thing that i wanted to to bring up was this idea that why he wrote the manifesto why he mm. put this together and i thought that this was really important that he wanted to document, right? He wanted to uh, uh, the future of behavioral science in a way that re- that impact was impacted by his reflections. right He started with this idea of he, he felt a need to reflect on where we've been. like take an accounting, and I think that that's a really important thing. Like before like at the end of every year, what do we do? We reflect on where we'd been before we develop our strategies for the next year. And I felt like that was really good. And the second thing that I thought was really cool is that he felt a need to push ourselves in the discipline so that we don't get lulled into thinking that our current approaches are always best. That I feel like if status quo bias is going to impact us, let's do what we can now. Let's do a pre-mortem and get ahead of it and say, Let's not go there. Let's avoid status quo bias. Let's avoid the defaults of this is where we've been. Those were those were a couple of things that I, I just thought that were really important in them, mm-hmm. in the way that I, you set I think it up. That,
0: Yeah, I think they are important. What was interesting to me is, you know, when he reached out and we were talking with him and he sent us this manifesto before I started reading it. My big question is, and kind of almost, I don't know if it still is or not, but is there a need for a manifesto? Are this are we at a inflection point in the field where we need to address this? And I I think that's a question that I would love to get our listeners. Anybody who's still listening to this obviously is interested in um, the field of either applied or research around behavioral science, and would love. Their thoughts on this. And and part of this, I think, comes down to, again, probably, as we talked about at the beginning, the bias that I have about the word manifesto mm-hmm. and the prescriptive nature of this. A, are these the 10 key pieces that are going to drive the field forward? Um, Are they the right responses in there? And I think it's a really fascinating. I think Michael brings up some really good points. And I think there is some really deep thought into this as we talked about. But I'm still just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm wavering. Um, And I think Michael has convinced me more towards the
1: need that it is there than against it. Yeah. I would also say that when I go through the themes in the manifesto. Uh, and you know there are 10 themes that break broken down under scope, methods and values. And we talked a little bit about these during, in the podcast. but but the way Michael breaks them down never felt rigid or prescriptive to me. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. And there were, t- however, there were times when I was looking for a little more North Star. In it, in it, there were there were times when I was hoping for something that was a little bit more aspirational out there to say we could navigate the success of the f- development of the field of behavioral science if we if we use this North Star to to navigate by if if we we had this out there.
0: Yeah, and I think that's hard though, and and, and what I appreciate uh, yeah, about that's damn hard. you know I mean no seriously, and I'm you know we we've we've talked about this right, but. Again, one of the themes that comes up throughout this entire interview that we had with Michael as well as the paper and – I, and I implore everybody out there, if you have not read the paper, go out, read the paper. If you're yes. in the field, yes. if you are uh, uh, applying behavioral science in any form or manner, researching it, go out and read it because it, it raises some really good questions and provides some – Pretty good insights into, you know, some solutions to what some of these kind of issues and that it's we a are read. running into. Yeah, it's a quick read. It is read. a quick read. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think there is this, this aspect that as much as I would like a North Star, that's hard because context matters and all these other things. And so it's kind of hard to do. And so mm-hmm. Michael's solution, I think, is kind of looking at you know, getting down into the weeds in some cases about how do we, how do we do, you, you know, randomized control trials in the field, actually yeah. being in business in applying this, right? And this is mostly about applied, although you can take some of this from a research perspective. So I think there is, um, real value in, in this work and and i'd just be very interested to hear what our listeners think as well because i think the bigger piece and i we should have asked michael this and i i i apologize michael if you're listening to this afterwards we should have asked you this but you know is is the intent of this to have a to build a conversation within the community um to say hey here's my stake in the ground and where do people fall on this or uh, where that is. And that's that's my take. And I think that's going to be some of the value that comes from this. Well,
1: I felt the same way. It, it The manifesto to me feels a lot like a conversation starter. It's not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. Mm. It's, it's to kind of nudge us. And I, I'm not using nudge in a classical <laughs> behavioral science way. I'm using it like gently You're actually pushing just us, yeah uh, yeah just actually gently pushing us forward to say let's make sure that we cover these 10 themes as we're continuing to build out the field and yeah. and that's that felt really good that he's at no point in time to say this is the solution again this no, it's, it's I, not that's very true it's not yeah. prescriptive Um but it's really good for for thinking about this as a discussion guide and as we start to talk about these things and this is this is kind of central to what science is right we have discussions about things we talk about them and and the good ideas hopefully will prevail you know uh, yeah. at and in the you know late 18th century Newtonian physics was the best thing going and huh. it was it had you know revolutionized the way we think about about the world but that's and, and, that's changed but, but it's still
0: yeah but it's changed but it's still useful
1: yeah, that's, that's the true. interesting yeah, piece yeah, right? right
0: i mean if you yeah. want to plot you know um the direction of a of a missile right you're not using einstein's you know theorem you're using Newtonian physics to yeah, do that yeah. right
1: within the the area and i well, think that well, is well you would I, I you know i might do something different but <laughs>
0: oh my god yeah okay so but but within there and so here here, i wanted to touch a little bit because you did you you brought this up this idea of scope methods values right and and under scope one of the things that i think is really interesting and we've had this conversation prior is this idea of behavioral science as a lens not just a tool bag of Mm, biases right and that to me resonates that is a big piece of what I think we need to get, we need to get away from this idea that uh, it's a list of 322 biases, you know, oh, yeah. and, and heuristics. And it's a lens of looking, particularly as we think about business. And I had just had a conversation with um, our old friend, Charlotte Blank, who used to be CBO at Merits. And, um, you know, it was one of the things that we talked about because she moved into a different role um, where she isn't, she's no longer, you know, kind of a CBO, she's chief marketing officer now. And so within that role, I was asking her, are you using behavioral science? And she said, to a certain degree, but not as much as I would like. And again, it's that lens. And so um, how do we integrate that lens into organizations at a deeper level um, in a more... Yeah. Broad level across the organization, and not just with people like you, um, who are you know leading that role within a company.
1: Which which gets me to one of the things that I liked in methods, and that was about RCTs within organizations. Like like bring the uh, random control trials into the field, into organizations. Let's you know do do them properly, right? Let's do them right.
0: Um, well, but th- this is where I, okay, so maybe I had a different interpretation of this because what I read about this is put RCTs in their place. This idea that sometimes in organization, you can't do an RCT, right. nor will the organization let you. Yep. And that's okay. Yes. We don't need to get it, particularly at an organizational level. I don't need to necessarily understand the mechanism of action that is actually driving the change. I just want to see that the change itself is happening. And so, and yep. and maybe I just totally misunderstood that, well, which probably no, is true. No, <laughs> no that's that, what I what I'm doing. But that's the piece where I was I was excited because I'm going, too many times I think we get stuck in this uh research mode as opposed to an application mode. And the research mode is I have to very clearly define all of these and make sure that I have the right R values and that the significance (laughs) is there and all of these, you know, make sure there's no confounding factors. And in business where, and we've had these conversations in the past, it isn't always that. It is about, are we getting the results that we need? And yes, I I, want to understand why. But that isn't the be all, uh, the, the, the the end is about the
1: results. It's not about the methods or the means to get there. Uh, uh, agreed, 100%. And there will be times when we do want to understand
0: yes why yes
1: I'm not uh, yeah, good point. And, so. and and in those situations, I felt like Michael was saying, let's do it and let's do it right. let's let's not sort of hold back. When we need to do an RCT in the field, let's do it and do it properly. Let's, you know,
0: well, and, and looking at different ways of getting the same type of information, the different type of statistical processing, the different testing methods um, to do that. And he brought up stuff that is well beyond my mere mortal um, brain <laughs> and thinking know. about how I those know. are. And he in the yeah. paper um, he writes about those as well. Yeah. So what about values, Tim? What what
1: what, what did you well, I love that he starts, he, he starts that whole discussion about values with humility. And I love that uh, because I think that that's really... Because you need that in your life? Because you're just not humble enough? Oh I, my God. Need it. I need to be reminded constantly about how if I weren't so great, what, what else would I be doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. God, as if <laughs> um, no, the, the the this humility uh, again wherever the field is being practiced, it's too easy, and he just. Put his finger right on it. First, go. Oh, that's confirmation bias. Oh, that's you know, it, you know. It's it's like whack a mole. You know. Oh, I can get that one. I can I can name that bias in two words. Like you know. <laughs> let's stop that. Let's actually think about what are the problems that we're trying to solve, and what is it that we need to do to solve them, and not just be so happy that we named it the right way. Uh, so I, I I like that, and I I was particularly Fond of that part of the discussion. How about how about you, Kurt? What about values? Yeah. Well, I, I
0: think that I, I want to just double down on what you just said there. So I went to um, the Minnesota History Museum last night, and they have a Sherlock Holmes exhibit there. Oh, and because Sherlock Holmes the...
1: was from Minnesota, wasn't he? Was is that is that <laughs> the connection?
0: <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, Are you talking the same? Are you know Arthur? No, oh, that was that must have yeah. been his cousin, Bob. Bob Holmes. (laughs)
2: Bob Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) No, but he he totally just
0: disrupted my train of thought, man. I can't concentrate now. But anyway, no, in in part of that, it was really interesting because they have you run through a crime scene and you have to do this. And one of the things that they said at the very beginning is look at the evidence and not assumptions. You will be you will be. Um, inclined to make assumptions about what happened. But what a good detective does is looks at the evidence and lets the evidence tell them what happened as opposed to making an assumption about what happened and then trying to fill in with the evidence. And I think this is the part about the humble that I take from Michael is that too often we come in because we have a grounding of, of knowledge and we go, oh, that must be, as you said, confirmation bias. Therefore, this is it. And we don't we, we no longer take that time to maybe pause and to look at what the evidence is pointing to and say, oh, Maybe confirmation bias is part of this, but what else is going on here and what are the other factors and to have that? So yeah. I think that is a big piece of this. And then lastly, just and we've had this conversation, too. Uh, let's just bury the word irrational.
2: And <laughs> let's just get
0: that. I mean, it's it, we can use it in appropriate times, but everything that doesn't fall within a classical economist, um, you know, normalized. Perspective of the world doesn't mean that it's irrational; that there is a probably an actual good reason for it, and we need to understand that. And I think it just doesn't drive well and doesn't suit the modern world. I couldn't agree more. That
1: that sounds right. that sounds great to me.
0: Well, Groovers, I think that's going to wrap this episode of Behavioral Grooves. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation, rant, whatever you want to call it, our manifesto of ourself (laughs) and uh, the grooving session that we had on Michael Hallworth's manifesto and that you've taken an, an idea or two and hopefully you can apply it in the work that you do or into your own life.
1: Yeah. And if you enjoyed the conversation, drop us a line, leave us a review, give us a quick rating. You know, we just to remind you, we don't do behavioral groups for fortune. We do it for fame.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and we do really we do want to start a conversation about this, right? Because I think that is the big piece um, that I would like to see as a takeaway from this is to get people to think about this, because that's the one piece that I think Michael probably doesn't even realize himself is that the the power that he has of bringing these Thoughts, these ideas, these questions forward, yeah. um, can really make a difference across many, many organizations. So, um, yeah, maybe we should revisit our our, our goals around, um, uh, you know, what we do with this show if it's only just for the fame and not for the fortune.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe we should. Uh, But for the time being, uh, folks, we hope that you just take a little bit of behavioral insight. Ask yourself the questions. Talk about this with your friends, family, loved ones, coworkers. Strangers. um, Strangers. Talk about it. On the bus, on the train, on the plane. Do it. Do it. And that maybe you could use this to help you go out this week and find your groove.